1: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Model organisms are those few species that biologists have focused incredible amounts of research effort on. They tend to be easy to keep, easy to modify genetically, and, thanks to the great body of work behind them, easier to understand than their wild counterparts. And in today's episode, we're going to explore one such model species that may deserve more attention than it's currently receiving. As we delve into the recent Heredity review, Tribolium beetles as a model system in evolution and ecology. Now this is a bit of a long episode, but it's worth it. As these little flower beetles really are quite incredible. And for long term listeners of the podcast, you may recognize one of the authors. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please all introduce yourselves?
2: Uh, well I'm Michael Pointer. I'm a PhD student at the University of East Anglia using tribolium beetles to study dispersal.
3: Hi everybody, I'm Lewis Spurgeon. I'm a lecturer also at University of East Anglia in population biology. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt
4: Gage. I'm a professor of evolutionary ecology at UEA as well. I love Tribolium and have worked with it for more than 20 years, but I do work with other systems as well.
1: Well, welcome all to the podcast. And Michael, welcome back. It's been just over a year since you were here as a co-host on a Pop Group special episode. But this time, obviously, we're here to discuss your work. And before we get into the details, I wonder if one of you could just give us a general idea of what this paper is about.
2: Yeah, thanks, James. I guess I'll do that. The idea for this paper came when I was trying to get to grips with the tribolium literature, having just joined the group. I was reading loads and loads of papers, some from up to 100 years ago, and realising that tribolium was a more important model system than I knew. Lewis, Matt, and I were talking about this one day, and Lewis suggested that there didn't seem to be a review bringing all of these studies together and highlighting the contribution that work with tribolium has made to Many different fields across ecology and evolution. So that's what we tried to do with the paper.
1: And I guess for people who don't know, tribolium are flower beetles and they are sort of fairly small, nondescript brown beetles. So why are they interesting?
2: Uh, So, as you say, tribolium is a genus of small brown beetles and they're thought to have once lived under the bark of trees, but they're now overwhelmingly found living alongside humans in grain storage facilities where they're pests eating and spoiling food products and causing massive economic losses. We don't know how long that transition from a more free living to a more human commensal lifestyle is taken but there is evidence of there being in some ancient Egyptian flower urns from about 5,000 years ago. Uh, So that's one way already that studying tribolium could be important and beneficial from an applied perspective, uh, improving food security. But these beetles also have a lot of features that make them really a useful model system for biologists. So for example, Beetles are a huge order and make up something like a quarter of all animal species. So Tribolium are well positioned to be representative of many other species. And there are also quite a few practical things like we can keep them in the lab just living in a pot of flour and easily sieve them out or sex them or mark individuals if we need to. And also that flour environment is very close to their semi-natural pest environment. So their lab habitat is less abstracted away from a natural habitat than it would be for many other model organisms.
1: Mm, cool. And I guess your review covers a really sort of incredible amount of research ground. And to do that, you've kind of broken it down into sort of like four broad research areas. And I thought it might be cool if we could just explore each and how Tribolium has kind of impacted different fields of biological research. And the first one that you explored was population dynamics. So I wonder what was happening in this sort of field.
3: Uh, so I think I can come in a bit on that. I mean and first of all I'd say that with all reviews there's always a, a bit of a question of somebody who will say, Well, you've you've missed out my bit. <laughs> and, and 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 we weren't able as much as we'd have loved to to cover every field of, of ecology and evolutionary biology. And these four are just four of the areas partly that interest us, partly some of the the ones where we felt there was loads of kind of really exciting work, but there are others as well. So population dynamics, yes. Yeah, so the one of the really interesting things about tribolium that's been known for decades and decades is that they have these populations that self-regulate so if you put them in some flour the population will grow they'll occupy that flour at some point the adults and the larvae will start eating eggs they cannibalize so the populations will self-regulate now if you don't replace their flour they'll go extinct but if you just change that flour provide them fresh food sieve them out literally with a set of sieves (laughs) um, put them back into some clean flour those populations will regulate over time and so because of that kind of nice property, the populations don't just sort of go up and then crash and then go extinct. They were a really widely used model for understanding population dynamics. So firstly, we can sort of ask questions around how things like kind of population size is regulated both by the amount of habitat, but then we can do some really nice experiments around asking well what if you start changing some aspects of those environments you change the temperature you change the quality of their food and, and you change these sorts of things how does that affect these population processes combined with that each pot little literally a little <laughs> pot of flour is a, is a replicate population so in a way that we're studying population dynamics in, in natural systems if you think of the famous examples in ecology like lynx and, and horseshoe hares mm. and things like that you know you're kind of restricted to studying just one population at a time here we can replicate the population in the tens or even the hundreds and so what i think this makes try Bolium is a really good model that's sort of an in-between. On the one hand, if you want to understand population dynamics, you can write an equation and you can make a mathematical model to say, here's how a population should behave over time. On the other hand, you can go out in your wellies and study wild population. And then that's obviously kind of confounded by a whole bunch of things that you can't understand. And then I think sitting somewhere in the middle, you've got this experimental model system, which I just sort of think of as a really complicated mathematical model in some ways, which is allows us to incorporate some of that real biological complexity while also being able to control some of those environmental features. So for that reason, mathematical modelers quite often have built theories about how populations should grow over time, and then they tested those with tribolium. And there's a whole rich area of studies that Mike talks about in in the review where those models have been tested, improved, and as a result, our understanding of ecology has really improved thanks to these experiments.
1: Mm, Wow, fantastic. Who, Who would have thought that mathematicians would have relied on beetles? And I guess some of those cool population dynamics almost certainly feed into the next area of research that you look at, which is basically sexual selection and reproduction. So what's happening with Tribolium here?
4: I guess I could chime in here on this one, my my pet area. Well, I guess it's worth starting by saying what makes Tribolium a great model for studying sexual selection and reproductive biology and evolution. And the first thing that it's really good at is it's really good at mating. And (laughs) you shouldn't really take that for granted. Having worked with things like butterflies where they just sit there and aren't really happy about being in the lab or being in, in, under control conditions. You've reared them all the way through for months on end, and then they just do nothing. Whereas Tribonium, it, it really does get on with it. And I guess that goes back to Mike's comment. We're kind of keeping this human commensal in relatively natural conditions to which it's evolved under. So it's a good uninhibited mater in the lab. So it's great for measuring reproductive behavior and that sort of thing. It's actually really promiscuous. So that's good if you are interested in things like sperm competition or female choice under both pre-mating and post-mating levels. It's also got quite a few genetic mutants, so we can use those to track paternity through studies of male-male competition and female choice. And we've also got transgenic beetles, which have glow-in-the-dark fluorescent sperm. So we can can actually see how those sperm are moving and whether they remain alive and where they go within the female reproductive tract. So I said it's uh, it's really good at getting on with mating. And actually, the males are really quite potent. So if you give a male 80 virgin females in a sequence across one week, he can inseminate and produce offspring with 50 of those females. Wow. So that's pretty <laughs> impressive for a, a beetle just a few millimetres long. And from the other side, if you give females a few males in a row, so if you give her 10 males in a row, she's likely to mate with all of them. And then she can go on to produce hundreds of offspring per week from those matings for months. So They're pretty good at reproduction, and I guess that's why um, pest controllers really want to get, get a handle on how to reduce that. It's also got a short generation time, about a month, so we can get reproductive output quite quickly and do transgenerational studies. And that also allows us to do evolution in the lab type experiments. So we've got a number of lines which have been put under various controlled selective conditions, and we can watch in real time how they've evolved under those conditions, under very specific conditions. And one of those conditions we've applied has been high versus low levels of sexual selection. So we simply vary the number of males versus females during the adult period of their regime through these lines. And that way we can apply really strong, where there's lots of males fighting over few females, sexual selection, or weak sexual selection, where there are a few males trying to mate with large numbers of females. And we also have conditions where there's no sexual selection, where we just apply monogamy. and We randomly give a male and a female a partner each so they don't get to choose and they don't have to compete. We've run those conditions for more than 10 years now, so we've used that to be able to understand how sexual selection has influenced the evolution of populations, individuals and traits. And there's this question as to whether sexual selection is a bad thing for populations because male-female conflict and male-male conflict might inhibit productivity of a population. But on the other hand, there's a theory that sexual selection is good for populations because making males fight over mating and allowing females to choose allows good genes to flow through the population and purge out bad genes. And what we found was actually... The latter to be true. So through a number of assays where we've looked at things like resistance to extinction, tolerating environmental stress, competing with rival populations and invading their genomes, we found that histories of really strong sexual selection make really good, strong, genetically healthy populations that resist extinction. So from a longer term perspective, we've shown through experimental evolution using this model that Sexual selection is good for the long-term health of populations and their resilience against things like climate change, genetic bottlenecking, and competition from other species. And then we can look at how sexual selection has influenced individuals, and we find not really surprising, I guess, if you come from a history of high sexual selection, as a male, you're really competitive, you make more competitive sperm, and those sperm are also bigger. What that means in terms of how they operate in the female tract, we don't know yet. And Females from those populations also turn out to be more able to cope with sexual conflict so they can deal with male harassment much better than females that have come from histories of weak sexual selection where everything's been monogamous and calm and non-competitive. Trouble is, under those conditions, females turn out to be not able to then control male-male harassment and the costs of that when they're put back into a kind of mass breeding population that you'd expect under normal conditions. So I guess... The Tribolium model has shown us that sexual selection is good for populations in the long term and it can shape the way males and females and traits like sperm and females' ability to cope with sexual conflict can evolve quite quickly under these conditions as well. So I've talked quite a lot about, um, I guess, basic pure responses to reproductive evolution, but Tribolium also has been good for understanding how species cope with applied pressures on them, for example, climate change. So we know Under climate change, that things like heat waves are likely to happen much more frequently. Males are famously sensitive to heat in the way they produce their sperm and their fertility. So we've known for a long time that mammalian males, including our own species, are not good at dealing with heat. Sperm are better produced under cooler conditions. They work better if they've been produced under cool conditions, which is one reason why we uh, have evolved to hang our gonads in more vulnerable positions. Uh, But that makes for good, more viable sperm. And we've known that for a long time, that heat is bad for warm-blooded animals. But I think we've neglected an understanding of how heat affects cold-blooded animals, which I think um, is an omission for a number of reasons. So first of all, cold-blooded animals, like insects, comprise the vast majority of biodiversity. Cold-blooded animals are probably more exposed to natural variation in heat. And as we've got climate change coming down the line and more extreme conditions, we need to know whether those cold-blooded animals like insects are vulnerable to extreme hot conditions as well in terms of their reproduction. So we've used Tribolium to try and understand that and we found pretty clearly that heatwave-like conditions, they basically damage male reproduction and fertility, damages their sperm, damages their viability, damages their sperm number, damages their ability to produce sperm. Females are quite resistant, they can cope with heat But if they've mated and they store sperm from males, which is how most insects handle reproduction, they then become damaged because the sperm inside them are vulnerable to heat as well. So it's a great model for studying pure aspects of reproductive evolution, but I think it's also good for studying applied aspects as well.
1: Wow. I think a lot of people listening who struggle to get their non-model systems to do anything are probably incredibly jealous right now.
0: You should celebrate yourself every day.
4: I don't think you can understate the importance of the tractability of a model in terms of just keeping it alive and allowing it to do normal things in the lab. And as Mike touched on at the start, you know, it's it's such an easy model to keep. You just need to give it flour and yeast uh, and the right temperature and humidity, and away it will go and do whatever you want for it. Many other species, you really have to work hard just on the diet to get them happy. Um, And you know, even Drosophila, it's quite a lot of work boiling up agar and cleaning things and that sort of thing. So a, a simple model that's easy to keep in the lab is, is a real asset for them being able to do these kind of quite advanced research projects upon.
1: Mm, no, for sure. And I guess in your previous answer, you've kind of already touched upon your next field of research that you've focused on, which is actually the bread and butter of heredity and the papers that we publish. And that's sort of population genetics and quantitative genetics. So... Presumably, given how readily they'll reproduce, there's some very cool stuff going on genetics-wise. So, how have they been used in the sort of field of study? So, they have
3: been. I mean, there's a, interesting to think about in terms of the history of population and quantitative genetics. I think so. In the olden days, before we had sequencing and anything, obviously, we were reliant on looking at phenotypes for understanding population and quantitative genetic kind of processes. And um, as, as, as Matt flagged up, there's some really interesting um, mutants in Tribolium, so single gene kind of dominant recessive mutants that were used quite early on to understand some of those processes, but also for the quantitative genetic traits. A lot of the early understanding, how people understood, was to take organisms in the lab to apply artificial selection and to look at how traits changed over time. And Tribolium was a big part of that early work, along with its sort of big sibling, Drosophila, which is kind of obviously a part of a, l- a much larger search field, trying to understand things like what are the limits to selection, what are the heritability on, on particular traits, so how much of it's controlled by genes versus the environment, how do those things interact. And so those there were a lot of really kind of similar experiments in the, in the early 20th century on that. From the kind of phenotype perspective, in more recent years, where triboliums come into its own in, in the kind of pop gen world, is through sort of studying kind of evolution and, and in small populations. So the interesting thing about the life history of tribolium is both, if you think about it, in terms, Mike talked a bit about its sort of native state, where it is likely associated with rotting wood, which is probably a sort of habitat that's quite dispersed and involves kind of having to colonise, growing that, and then involves long distance dispersal events, probably continued bottlenecks associated with that, that kind of process. Certainly the case then with flour mills or grain stores, Or whatever, you've got these patches of suitable habitats um, interspersed with huge areas of nothing. And so there's been a lot of interesting work done, done by various groups, including some of the work that we're doing and that Mike's doing as part of his PhD around, well, how do these pests colonise and how do factors like inbreeding and, and the like, and Matt's going to talk probably a bit about inbreeding in, in a bit, but how do they interact to affect these colonisation dynamics from a population genetic perspective? And what that work's shown is that there are a range of different factors involved in kind of what makes a successful population. So we know that if you have more colonisers, that a a population is more likely to establish. That's very clear. But with these experiments, what you can do is you can manipulate the levels of genetic diversity versus the numbers of individuals. So you can separate some of that work out. And some some great work done by Ruth Huffbauer and, and her group and others have looked at this. And so we can tease apart, or, OK, uh, more colonizers better because they've got more genetic diversity or because, for instance, there's more opportunity to find a mate. Um, so what we kind of call avoiding things like what we call alley effects. And there are some interesting interactions between all of those things, and they all play a role to different extents. Then from it kind of moving into the modern era, we now obviously have genetics and genomics. And, and Tribolium is, I think, along with Drosophila, one of the sort of best annotated sort of insect genomes. It's it's predominantly been used in, in developmental genetics and, and for a lot of really important work on the role of genes in development in insects. And actually the kind of integrating that genomic work with... The sort of the questions that you know is the bread and butter of heredity on, on pop gen and quantitative genetics. I think is an area that we identify in the review as is probably underexploited in this system. So given that we have both a good genome and this really good potential for experiments, that it's there. I mean, it has been done and people have done some interesting work. But perhaps all of the work that's been done in say Drosophila on evolve and resequence has been less exploited in the Tribolium world.
1: Mm. No, for sure. It seems like the ideal system for looking at genetics. And I guess you touched there on life histories. And I guess that's the sort of final big field of research that you looked at was life history and behavioral ecology. These both seem as though they might be kind of simple in Tribolium. So I'm really curious about what's happened here in different fields of research.
2: Yeah, so this is obviously a bit of a less clear cut one, because behavior, ecology and life history traits underlie or interact with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about already Mm. lewis has been discussing uh, how Tribolium have been used to study population dynamics and those studies began back in the 20s and 30s and the work on tribolium ecology and life history got going as a way to account for the patterns that were observed in those experiments so this started with things like how many eggs a single female lays How does that vary over her lifetime or how long does she live for? So that those values could be fed into mathematical models of population dynamics. But the beauty of a model system is that you do more experiments and you can build more and more complex pictures of what's going on. So now, for example, we know that tribolium excrete a range of chemicals into their environments, some to attract or repel other individuals. And these chemicals build up in the environment over time. And then the level of these chemicals can be sensed by the beetles and used as an indicator of how many other beetles there are around. And they can then alter their behavior, like how many eggs they lay and where, or whether or not they choose to disperse. And these decisions are also, though, influenced by things like food type and temperature and humidity and uh, the population age distribution, and even things like whether their parents had enough food as larvae or were infected with a parasite. So researching these types of things stacks up until you've got a, a really nice overall picture uh, do you want to add anything to that Matt or Lewis?
4: No I think that that covers it really nicely Mike one thing I think tribonium has been neglected in is its, its potential as a kind of undergraduate teaching aid because it's it's so kind of tractable and malleable easy to produce and and then you could potentially do really neat sort of experiments in the lab look at breeding, look at mutant inheritance and that sort of thing. And there's all sort of manner of opportunities in this system. I know it's kind of a relatively unnatural, some would say, compared with the natural environment. So it kind of sits, as Lewis said, on this continuum between the sort of pure mathematical model to the complexity of the natural environment. And I mean, we we like it because you get kind of the best of both worlds to a degree. You can control things down to really fine scales. It will behave relatively normally, as far as we can tell, in the lab under experimental conditions, and we've been able to use that to do all sorts of projects in behavioural ecology and life history, evolution. So one good example is how they cope with inbreeding. So as Lewis mentioned, inbreeding is likely to be a relatively important phenomenon for this species, certainly in its evolutionary past. It's got to move between, disperse between depleted resource-based populations and, and try and find new ones. And there may be occasions where a single female founds a new population, for example, in a grain store, much to the angst of the farmer and the food producer. But that female needs to carry sperm from a number of males to avoid that population being entirely composed of siblings. And we've shown quite recently how important it is just to have one extra mating for a female in terms of being able to then expand her population if she disperses to new environment. Other aspects of inbreeding. So, so we know that in this beetle, it doesn't appear to recognise kin or siblings. So it seems quite happy, both female and male, to mate readily with siblings versus non-siblings. There doesn't seem to be any mate discrimination, which we found a bit surprising. But what we did find was that the way that females seem to avoid inbreeding to a degree is basically just by mating promiscuously. So they mate with multiple males, they let the competition fire, they apply whatever female choice mechanisms they have, which we've yet to discover, and somehow by mating promiscuously, they're able to avoid a lot of the inbreeding costs that they would endure if they mated monogamously. And of course, one prediction from that is that if you live in an inbred bottleneck population, you might expect females to evolve to become more promiscuous in that environment because if promiscuity helps you avoid inbreeding and leave more offspring then that's likely to be a behavior that gets selected for quite quickly and so we did that experiment we bottleneck populations and what we found is if we drove them through population bottlenecks let them regrow as an inbred population and cycle for a few generations that indeed those populations became a lot more promiscuous so kind of a nice way of understanding how mating pattern can change under risks of genetic stress or inbreeding and using kind of simple assays of behavior in the lab to show that promiscuity had ramped up as a means potentially to avoid inbreeding and we think there's loads of those kind of opportunities to apply not just in phd and above kind of levels of research but also undergraduate levels as well for helping them understand how evolution operates
1: wow it's very clear that tribolium touch upon a huge range of research topics and ones that actually to be honest i find a little bit funny at times as well (laughs) not many people thought Try and
4: measure how many times a male can mate with different females over a week. I
1: bet bet there's some very entertaining conference talks. But I guess... Obviously, it's been used quite extensively and it's a very malleable model. So you can apply it to a whole bunch of different questions. But you've also kind of mentioned that in some areas like the genetic side, it's maybe underutilized. And with every review, there is kind of a look forward. So I wonder what you think the sort of key take-home message in this paper is and what you're hoping to see from people as they go forward. Like, is there anything that you're hoping to inspire action-wise or Uh, discussion-wise?
2: I think firstly... Uh, We hope to attract some love for the Tribolium system, which is perhaps (laughs) relatively overlooked compared to the big established model systems like mouse or C. elegans or Drosophila, as fascinating and valuable as those Mm -hmm. all are. And we've tried to highlight the strengths of this system and the ways that it has been and can continue to be used in the future, particularly with its great genomic resources and its responsiveness to genetic manipulation.
3: Yeah, and I think that some of the work kind of linking that classical work on kind of population dynamics, which really was very important. Bringing that into the modern era is, I think, for the kind of ecologists and pop gen folks in in heredity interested in those sorts of questions, I think Tribolium would be a very good model for them. That last bit on genetic manipulation, which we didn't really go into, was that you can essentially feed them double-stranded RNA and it will knock a gene down, which is not as easy to do in a lot of other models. So you can sort of ask, well, okay, what do the populations do when when we knock this gene down and and stuff like that. So those areas of combining all of the cool stuff we can do with genomics with some of the still unresolved classical questions in ecology, I think is a really important area moving forward.
4: Yeah, I think most people study tribolium because they want to kill it. (laughs) Um, It is is an important and damaging pest of stored products. But it has many other attributes as well for studying biology. And I'd really like to see it used more widely in undergraduate teaching, in evolution, ecology and genetics. And without being too boring on the sexual selection side, I think it'd be really nice. And we've kind of started to look at this to understand how sexual selection shapes a genome. Because there are all sorts of interesting predictions about how competition and choice and actually even the the evolution of sex itself might be down to the importance of competition and choice for purging a genome to avoid deleterious mutation buildup. And if that's true, we might find signatures of that if we can look across genomes that have been under high versus low sexual selection. And that's where a combination of phenomics and genomics come together. And that's what we've been kind of trying to do through using this model at UEA.
1: Mm. No, fantastic. I mean, there is definitely a lot for people to think about who, I'm not going to lie, personally, I hadn't really thought much about Tribolium before reading this paper, but it is eye-opening at the sheer like, scale of research projects it can be involved in. And we've obviously only touched a fraction of your paper, so hopefully people will now go and give it a read. And just to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us what it's called and also just mention anybody else who might need a mention in thanks for producing this work.
2: Yep, so the paper is tribolium beetles as a model system in evolution and ecology Uh, and i think we need to thank all the other people that work in our lab at uea and with also thanks to the humble flower beetle (laughs) and tribolium researchers old and new
1: indeed indeed well thank you very much for sharing your research with us thank you thanks very much you're welcome it's been a pleasure thanks to mike lewis and matt as always you can find this paper on the heredity website That's nature.com forward slash H-D-Y. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?